Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Jesus said to his disciples, In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the earth, to the end of the sky. Learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, you know that he is near at the gates. Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Good evening. Winter showed up, huh? Yeah, man. So as we come to the end of the liturgical year, the church's uh, readings for the lectionary, they get more and more apocalyptic, right? You've got in the, the gospel, we've got Jesus talking about when you see all these, ha- these things happening, what is he talking about? He's talking about like he's coming on the clouds, stars falling from the sky, the moon's light's going to be blotted out. All of these things, right? You got the prophet Daniel in the first reading saying things that like we're going to be entering into a time of unsurpassed tribulation. How about that, huh? Does that sound good or what? Okay, all right, moving on. All right, so you got Jesus saying, I'm going to be sending out my angels to the four corners to gather in the elect. So what is going on? How are we supposed, like as Catholics, how are we supposed to understand this apocalyptic language? Um, like the left, I'm just, I just suddenly saw in my mind uh, the Left Behind series, Kirk Cameron, right? Like all of those things. No, that's not how, what we believe as Catholics. That's not what we believe. This is not, when we talk about the apocalypse, when Jesus is talking about all of these things happening, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of this, this is not as though he's like, this is not the etch-a-sketch end to creation. He's not just like, ah, forget it, just, it's all bad. He's just, end it all. That's not what we believe. That's not what's going on. To understand, to understand the entire, to understand the, the, this apocalyptic vision, to understand the entire story of human history and every moment in it, you have to understand, you have to look at how it all ends, right? You have to look at how it all ends. Not, like, in other words, you have to look at what is it all converging to, because as, as Christians, as Catholics, we make a pretty astounding claim that everything in creation, from the the furthest distant star to the smallest blade of grass to the 
little grasshoppers and the everything from the from every birth and death and battle and empire every like monarch and every monarch butterfly everything in between all of it is being caught up through God's providence in this conspiracy of of love this conspiracy in the heart of the trinity to share God's goodness with creation that the ultimate destiny of all things is ultimately to be united to God like, that's the crazy thing. We say that everything that God has made, everything, like, what is the whole story about? It's about this convergence that God is bringing about this purpose of uniting everything to himself. And the gospel that we just have for tonight, on this 33rd Sunday, this gospel is lifting the veil to give us a sneak peek of the, the end, right? That's what the word apocalypse means, right? Apocalypsis in the Greek. It means unveiling, lifting the veil, just like... The book of Revelation, revelatio, the unveiling, lifting the veil. So something is being unveiled, a vision of the end, and it's not destruction, it's not doom and gloom, it's life and love and communion. But to even to press even further, to understand this gospel, to understand what's being unveiled, we have to look at, at uh, what could appear as a throwaway verse just at the very end of this gospel. Jesus says, after he says the very enigmatic things about the sun, the moon, the stars, all of it's going to be blotted out. It's going to fall from the sky. When he says the Son of Man will come back to gather the elect from the four corners, then he says this. Regarding the timing of this. Regarding the timing of this. He says, but of the day and of the hour, nobody knows. Neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So we hear this, we hear this through the lens of 21st century Christian ears, right? Our American sense of things, and we think, these are, this is bizarre, this doesn't make sense. It's awfully opaque. And like, what does it mean that nobody knows? The angels don't know. What does it mean that not even Jesus knows? I thought he was the son of God. Doesn't he know everything? What would Jesus' contemporaries have heard? That's the question. If we were to listen to this gospel through the lens of first, with first century ears, the first century worldview, what would we have heard? What would we have immediately jumped to? What conclusions would we have drawn? And in a word, we would have immediately thought about marriage. I know that doesn't sound like it makes sense, but stay with me. Marriage, marriage. They would have thought marriage. And not just any marriage. It was the marriage, the marriage, the union of God and humanity. So this is, this is why. Because in Jesus' day, first century Judaism, this was the custom that to enter into marriage, it was a two-stage process. First, it was a betrothal period. And the way that they entered into a betrothal period, a, you know, a young Jewish bridegroom-to-be, he would present his Jewish, I don't know if they called them girlfriends back then, but he would present his Jewish girlfriend a cup of wine. And he would say, this is the cup of my covenant. Does that sound familiar, Catholics? Yes? Okay. All right, this is the cup of my covenant. And then at that point, they would be officially betrothed, but they were not living together yet. Think of Mary and Joseph. They were betrothed, but they weren't living together. So he presents the cup of the wine. He says, this is the cup of my covenant. The word covenant in Scripture, when you hear the word covenant, hear the word marriage. They mean the same thing. Covenant and marriage are the same thing. This is the cup of my covenant. Then what the bridegroom would do is he would go back to his father's house. And he would begin construction. He would build a room, like a, an addition, onto his family home, right? Because that's where him and his wife, that's where they would settle. That's where they would move. Doesn't that sound great, married people, right? 
just living at your mom and dad's house, right? Fun, in a little one-room space. But it worked back then, right? So, and this is how this would work, that the, that the bridegroom-to-be, he would set about working, and he would work with friends and neighbors and all those sorts of things, but it wasn't up to him to oversee the construction. The person who had the competency, the authority to oversee the work was the bridegroom-to-be's father. He was one who oversaw it. And not only that, but it was his job to tell his son, to tell the bridegroom-to-be when it was completed. In other words, the son didn't know when it was done. It was the father's word that said, all right, son, good job. The house is done, now go get her. And he would go back, get his bride, at any point in the night or day, and they would bring her back, and they would begin the seven-day-long marriage feast, which would end with the night of consummation. The son would be sent by his father to go get his bride, to go get his bride. That's what happened at the Last Supper. That's what's going on at the Last Supper. Jesus presenting humanity represented by the apostles, the cup of the covenant, right? Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal Thanks for playing. The new and eternal covenant, the new and eternal marriage, right? He's entering into a betrothal place, into a, a betrothal period. This makes sense of other things that Jesus says in the gospel, right? Where he says things like, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. And I will come back to you and I will take you to be where I am so that where I am you also may be. Right? All of this is, is marital imagery. This is what first century Judaism, this is how his, 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 his audience would have understood this. So here's the question, like, where is all of this headed, this, this notion of like, all of human history, where is it all headed, all of creation, the final goal, the final purpose, the final destiny of every body, your body, my body, is not destruction, it's not the grave, it's not death, it's not decay, it is love and it's union with God for all eternity. That's where we're headed. That's what heaven is, by the way, right? Heaven's not the big room where God happens to live, where we will hopefully live in our little cloud mansions one day, right? We have this image of heaven being like this, this place where like you get your cloud house and your cloud mailbox and you got your cloud dog and your cloud neighbors and like every once in a while God walks by, you're like, wow, he's really big and bright, right? I wish I had sunglasses or something, right? That's not heaven. Heaven is not the place where God happens to live. It is union with God. Right? The Trinity, the endless exchange of life and love, this endless giving and receiving of infinite glory, infinite bliss, infinite beauty, that is the Trinity. That is what we will literally be taken up into in heaven. You don't seem impressed. Are you, are you, like, are you with me? Is there a carbon monoxide leak in here tonight or something? I'm telling you your ultimate destiny and glory. You're like, all right, that sounds all right. Do they have wings there? I don't know. We will literally be taken up into the very life that hung the stars in the sky. That's why scripture says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It hasn't even entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for us. Like, and God has written, he has stamped this story. He's chiseled it into our very bodies as men and women, right? This is the story that the Bible is telling, that all of it is headed towards this crazy union, this crazy marriage between heaven and earth, right? Because the Bible begins with a marriage, right? The beginning of the Bible in Genesis, Adam and Eve, a couple being wedded in an earthly paradise, and the Bible ends with a marriage, 
of Christ the bridegroom wedding himself to the church, not in an earthly paradise, but a heavenly paradise. The first human words in scripture, Adam waking up, looking at the newly fashioned, like first body of a woman. He says, this one at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, his cry of his heart. The last human words in scripture are the church crying out in glory, come Lord Jesus. It's the longing of the bride for the bridegroom, the consummation of the union. This is a lot on a Sunday evening. You with me? It's pretty steamy stuff. You okay? We're good? Fan ourselves a little bit? Okay. This is what the Bible is telling us. The story that's behind the story is God's conspiracy to bring us into this union like that, this is what John, the, the beloved disciple, sees in the book of Revelation. When God pulls aside the veil and lets him see into heaven, what John sees is not four horsemen of the apocalypse. He doesn't simply see death and destruction. He sees a wedding feast. A wedding feast. That's what's unveiled in the book of Revelation. Think about like a bride getting unveiled at her wedding. That's who's being unveiled. That's what's being unveiled. Look, you've heard me say it before, and I'll say it a million more times, but like this faith of ours is, is not simply a moral program that like is about correcting our behavior so that we can just like feel good about ourselves. Like Jesus is, has never said, just be nice. It's not what this is about. It's not what this is about any more than like a marriage is simply about budgeting and financial management. At least I hope it's not. I mean, I'm a celibate. I don't really know. I hope it's more than just that. Is it more than that? Yes? Okay, good. All right. I wouldn't, I'd hate to think I gave up all of that for this. Okay. It's an invitation into, an, Christianity is an invitation into an intimacy, into a, a bliss, a glory, a, a, a friendship with like love itself. Like the stunning proposal that's at the heart of the gospel is a stunning proposal. Like it's not just simply like God took away your sins. The stunning proposal, what's being proposed to us in the gospel is that God has become flesh, that he's bent the knee, he's kneeling before every soul and saying, I, I, I not only love you, I like you. I love you, I see you, I know you. I'm not going anywhere, I've called you to myself and will you spend eternity with me? Like, I'd love to fill you with my divine life. And this has already happened. This whole crazy glory, this marriage of the lamb, this union of God and humanity has already happened in one member of our human race. She's standing behind me. Like in her blessed womb, heaven and earth have been wedded together. She is the living image of the Trinity's love on earth. She's this blazing supernova of glory. She is not a porcelain statue. You want to hear more about that? Come to that December 12th event here, 6.30 p.m. That's your spoiler alert. That's your trailer. It's going to be awesome. We receive this pledge of future glory at every single mass. Like the prayer that we pray here at Sacred Heart it comes from St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, the O Sacred Banquet, that whole prayer. Have you ever stopped to really listen to those words or contemplate what we're saying there? Like, O Sacred Banquet in which Christ is received. By whom? The bride. 
the church, you, right? The church is the bride of Christ, the one for whom he gave up his life. This is my body given for you. The bride is the one, you and I, yes, my brothers, you are part of the bride. The bride is the one who opens to receive the gift of life that flows from his heart, right? O sacred banquet in which Christ has received, the memory of his passions recalled. The soul is filled with grace. What is grace? It's God's life. It's his glory. It's his beauty, right? Who else is full of grace? Hail Mary, full of grace. Thanks for playing. The Lord is with thee, right? She is literally in her womb, filled with God's life. Do you realize after you receive communion, you've had your own moment of the Annunciation, like God is tabernacling in you in the same way that he tabernacles in Mary. And we hear this, the pledge of future glory has given us. The Eucharist is a foretaste of the infinite, perfect, holy communion that is heaven. Like the drama that we're talking about here. The whole drama of your life and my life, it just hinges on the simple question of will we say yes or no to this invitation that comes from the heart of Christ? Like, and this, by the way, like, like that's what your amen means when you, like, come up for communion, right? When we say the body of Christ, like, that is the bridegroom saying, I'm giving you everything. No more of these simple head nods, please. I, I'm, sh I'm saying this to you as your father, as your brother in Christ, like, no more of just this simple head nod. Let your yes mean yes, your no mean no. Let your voice be heard, let it be an amen. It's the king of kings and lord of lords who's proposing his heart to you. Like, if it, like, I'm just gonna land it there. You with me? No more of these, mm, right? It's Jesus who's standing in front of you saying, I'm giving you everything. And we're like, mm -hmm. yeah, thank you. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Let your amen be audible. Amen? amen. Glory. Okay. We, will we as the bride of Christ say yes to the bridegroom? I want to end with telling you this story. About three years ago, I had an awesome opportunity to go on a pilgrimage to Assisi in Rome. Um, it, it was a trip of a lifetime. And, and the high point of the trip was uh, we got to spend an after-hours, two-hour time block in the Sistine Chapel. No one else in there. Which, if you've been to the Sistine Chapel before, you know that's, that's crazy. Because you go there, and it's like you and a thousand of your closest friends. You're like sardines. You're all trying to snap a picture, and the guards are going, Silencio! No photo! And you're like, yeah, okay. Right? <laughs> so you get ushered out really quick. But this time, on this trip... It was two hours, uninterrupted. No one else was in there. And I was leading the tour group through the Vatican Museum. We get into the Sistine Chapel. No one's in there. This is unbelievable. So I, I seized the moment. I walked into the center of the room, right, right beneath the, the fingers, and I just laid down on the floor. Just like, well, here we go. <laughs> just like, oh, and it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Pretty quick, all the other pilgrims came in, and they all just kind of, unbeknownst to me, they all started laying down on the floor around me. I'm like having a moment. I'm crying. And before you know it, there's about 40 adults just lying down on the floor of the Sistine Chapel. And then the guards walked in. And I think they thought we were a suicide cult or something. Because <laughs> they freaked out, right? You're not supposed to lay down on the Sistine Chapel floor. They're like yelling at us, get up, get up. 
Anyway, so one of the things that I noticed for the first time that I never noticed before in the Sistine Chapel, of course, is you've got the last judgment scene, right? The, the elect on the, the right of Christ are being taken up into glory. The, de- the condemned are on the left of Christ going down into eternal punishment. And all around you, on all the walls, are painted frescoes, right? From the scene, for scenes from Christ's life. But it's like a three-layered cake, three-tiered cake. What I never noticed before, the first layer, the first third, the bottom third, it's all painted drapery. It's not any scenes from Christ's life. It's just a bunch of painted drapes. I never noticed it before. As I was sitting in there, it just, it just dawned on me. It struck me that, like, well, of course it is. Because what we're seeing here is the drama. That all of creation, everything that God made, those seven days of creation, everything that he's done is about creating the stage for the ultimate drama of humanity and divinity to come together. Will humanity, will Juliet say yes to Romeo? That's the question. And we, vacillating, fearful, nervous Juliet, always say to Romeo, I don't know, come back tomorrow. And we do that again and again every day of our life. And then eventually that I don't know, come back tomorrow is going to turn into a no when we die. The drama is will we say yes? Will we say yes? Because... I don't know about you, but I want to be on the right side of the last judgment scene. That's just me. I don't know about you, but I don't want to put that on you. I'm going to put that on you. I'm your priest. We all want to be on the right side of the last judgment scene. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I'm going to boil it down to this. And this might sound weird. This might get weird, but just stay with me. Michelangelo's last judgment scene, you have Jesus in the center, and he's naked. The resurrected Christ who's judging the nations is standing there in the center and he's naked. And the saints around him, they're naked too. We are judged in the end by a naked Christ, surrounded by a naked communion of saints. Jesus, because of modern sensibilities, we've draped his body, we've draped those parts of his body just for our, you know, for own decorum. But he was born like all of us naked. He was crucified naked, he was buried naked, he came out of the tomb naked, right? The burial, car, the burial garbs were set to the side. And you and I, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will be stripped of all of our illusions, all of our pretenses, everything will be set aside. We will stand there not as we intended to be, not as we tried to be, not as we hoped to be, not as we pretended to be. We will stand there naked as we actually are, what we've become. There's gonna be no more hiding. The goal of this life, the goal of the spiritual life is to come out from hiding to get used to the light so it's not glaring and painful. The light is our friend. The drama of your life is is the drama of coming out from hiding. Let the masks fall, let the costumes fall, let the pretenses fall, let it all fall. Our, our, Our first parents put the fig leaves on their bodies We have to take those off. Remove the fig leaves from our hearts so that Jesus can see us. To let ourselves be seen. That is it. That is it. That's the whole spiritual life boiled down. And he's not asking us to do something that he himself has not done. He went first. He went first. In his naked vulnerability, he's given himself to us. And he's saying, meet me here. It's the best place to be. And let me love you there. It's what you're made for. It's the marriage of the Lamb to which we are all journeying. Amen.